0: Sean Latham is on the line. Sean is with Tulsa University and is also the chair of the humanities uh, department there. And your new responsibilities are with the Bob Dylan archives as well. So welcome to WLRN and Folk and Acoustic Music, Sean.
1: Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and I run the Institute for Bob Dylan Studies here at the University of Tulsa. And it's it's become a really exciting job, especially with his 80th birthday just around the corner.
0: This is a full-time job for you, is, is with uh, studying Bob Dylan?
1: Uh, it certainly feels like it at the moment. We've got all kinds of great things going on, including a big conference to celebrate his birthday. We've just put out a book, a collection of essays about Dylan's life and career and context. Uh, so, yeah, it feels like Dylan's taken over my life.
0: Tell me, w- what recently the univers- uh, Tulsa University has acquired the uh, Bob Dylan Archives. Is, is this a big collection?
1: It's massive. And it, I should I should clarify that in 20, 000, 2016, it was the George Kaiser Family Foundation, which is a nonprofit charitable organization here in Tulsa that acquired the archives and uh, have moved them to downtown Tulsa. They'll be next door to the Woody Guthrie archives here in the city. Uh, and it is an astonishing collection of uh, at least 100,000 objects. The catalog itself for the collection has some 800,000 entries because there are stems for every recording session and so on. So it is it is a massive treasure hoard that's arrived here in Tulsa.
0: Are you a Bob Dylan fan?
1: Well, I I am now. I'm professionally obligated to be a Bob Dylan (laughs) fan. Uh, But as I I like to say, uh, it's not so much a question of me having come to Dylan as Dylan having come to me. I'm actually trained as a James Joyce scholar, and that's what I've spent the first part of my career doing. But when we acquired the archive, my university president called me in and said, you seem to be the guy on campus that knows how to spend a lot of time focused on just one guy. So... What do you think should we have a Dylan Institute? Can we do for Dylan what we did what's been done for James Joyce and that's sort of how I got how I got involved in all this.
0: Well, do you think Dylan is comparable to James Joyce? Absolutely. I consider
1: myself an incredibly fortunate guy because I got to spend all this time working on what i consider to be and i think what many people would consider to be the most important artist from the first half of the 20th century not just the most important writer but a guy that sort of changed everything about what art could be and do and james joyce and i think it's very easy to make the case that the same is true of bob dylan and it's not just me saying that Other Nobel laureates like Salman Rushdie and Katsuo Ishiguro both said, you know, they were really glad Dylan won the Nobel Prize because he changed the way they thought about what art was, about what literature could do, about what language could do. So, yeah, I think Dylan is the James Joyce of the second half of the 20th century, or maybe James Joyce is the Dylan of the first half of the 20th century.
0: Well, how did Dylan change pop culture and and literature to, to these great minds?
1: I mean, I, I think what he did was basically make us take it seriously. It was that moment of going from rock and roll and sort of being about breakup songs and teenage angst and things to, to, to creating in in and around these sort of, you know, popular forms really serious kinds of expression that touch on questions of philosophy, of history, of racism, of our obligation to the past and of its hold on the future. He was an activist. There's just so much that goes into what Dylan's able to do in a form that had long been derided or treated as as ephemeral, as not really very important as somehow less than literature or poetry or painting. And I think what Dylan did was to say, look, there's really important stuff going on at all levels of expression and you can make great art from the sort of common stuff of everyday life, including you know things like folk music, pop music, rock and roll.
0: I became enamored with Dylan, like most folks back... Uh, well, it was in 1975, actually, because I'm a little bit younger than that generation. But it was through folk music and that, that I became enamored with Dylan and his protest music. I guess folk music was a good entry to introduce that type of literature.
1: Yeah, I think so, and I mean, as you know, as Dylan himself uh, famously said late in his career, uh, after having you know gone through converting to Christianity and and being constantly asked questions about this, he said about the old folk music, "I find the religiosity in the songs," you know, and I think that there's no deeper well or touchstone for Dylan than than folk music, folk and folk music broadly conceived, what Griel Marcus famously called "old weird America," everything from shape note hymns to gospel music to the country blues to you know, to murder ballads and and the old English ballads that get worked through Appalachian culture. All of those strange stories that are not really necessarily just about American optimism and thriving and happiness and falling in love, but about flowers growing out of a skull. And I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I think really attracted Dylan. And he keeps finding the sort of mysteries of American identity in that music. And I think it's it's the folk sensibility when he brings it to gospel, when he brings it to rock, when he brings it to country that transforms those genres and makes them so rich and compelling.
0: Bob Dylan has written songs in the gospel and country and folk and rock style, and it's confusing. It, it, it it's so hard to pin him down.
1: Yeah, and I don't you know I don't think he wants to be pinned down. I think you're meant to be confused because yeah. I I also think he wants to suggest these things aren't entirely separate. We want to kind of put stuff in, in categories and genres and say, this can't be like that. And one thing Dylan, I think, ins- insists in his lyric and in his sound is these all come from the similar kind of taproot, that it's it's not helpful to us to start carving that music up because it all speaks to different kinds of American experience. And the more you try to, to paint it into a particular corner, the more damage you do to all of those connections that do link country to gospel, to the blues, to R&B, and so on. So I think Dylan really is, is is fascinating, not because he's in all these genres, but because he keeps trying to find the common ground between them, to remix them in, in weird and interesting ways to help us hear how they actually connect and thus how they help us connect.
0: I'm speaking with Sean Latham of Tulsa University and uh, talking about the archives of Dylan's material at the university. I, I like to think that the Weavers, with Pete Seeger more or less, created the genre of American folk music. And in 1965, at the Newport Folk Festival, Bob Dylan more or less killed American folk music. <laughs> uh, does, does he? Do, do you, going through his archives, the feedback he's got from the, the listeners, he got a lot of negative feedback to, when he went to rock and roll. It doesn't seem to affect him.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think he got some negative feedback, but not entirely. And I can tell you one of, so just to give you a a glimpse of the treasures that are in the archive, one thing that we found, um, and it's the only thing like this that we found, is a giant bag of fan mail from 1966, the year of the motorcycle accident, before and after. Uh, It had clearly been sent up to Woodstock, where he was recovering. Uh, And so you've got, and it's all unopened. Dylan did not open any of this fan mail, and there are thousands of letters from around the world. And you get to see the sort of, letters before the motorcycle accident and after. And it's just this, it's like a time capsule from 1966 of what people thought about Dylan. And I can tell you, there's as much love and fascination and excitement about his music as there is complaints about, you know, somehow he's betrayed, you know, Seeger's folk ideal. Dylan has his own folk ideals, I think. And so, you know, we're still opening this, like we're still opening these letters and reading them and trying to make sense of them. And I can it's, it's fascinating. One of the I've got a graduate student that's actually doing this work right now, and one of the most interesting things we've found, we've found lots of interesting things, but one of them is um, the number of people that send their songs to Dylan and ask him to record them, right? Like Dylan is inspiring people to say, I can do this. I can make my own music. I have my own story to tell. And it's just wild to me to think that you'd write to Bob Dylan and be like, here, I wrote this song. Can you perform it at your next concert or whatever? It speaks to that connection that I think is has very little to do with like oh he's betrayed us for going electric, and much more to do with what people are hearing in the words themselves.
0: And they also put Dylan up on this pedestal as if he is superhuman. Is is he must have such incredible pressure put on him because people do act as if he's an idol.
1: Yeah, and I th- you know I think this is the other thing that's probably going to be really instructive when it as it emerges from the archive is is I think one thing a lot of people want to see in Dylan is a romantic poet. That is they want to believe that the words that he that he writes and that come out of him and land on the page and in their ears have come from from immediately from his soul, right? And what we actually see in the archive is Dylan's not a romantic poet in that sense. He's not just the, writing songs that spring Athena-like from his head, fully formed, right? He's working and researching and revising and rejecting far more than he accepts. Every song that we hear from Dylan has been carefully worked and reworked and revised. And so I think even though we may want to say, oh, Dylan matters to me so much because he's speaking the words of my heart, it's not sort of just coming from the heart, it's coming from the head, it's coming from research. It's touching, as I said, all of this kind of music that Dylan's been fascinated with since since he was a young man. and and I think that's a really interesting aspect that's going to come out of the archive. It's just how carefully Dylan worked at his craft his entire career and continues to do so.
0: I'm, I'm again, concerned and trying to figure out the relationship between James Joyce and Bob Dylan. James Joyce <laughs> never had to deal with this popularity that Dylan is dealing with.
1: I mean, certainly, you know, it's a different era. So. But Jerry Joyce, by the 1930s, was a pretty famous guy. After Ulysses got banned, and it was the greatest thing that ever happened to Joyce was Ulysses Ulysses getting banned to the United States, because it made him famous as the banned artist like who wrote about sex, right? And that that was the Joyce brand for a long time. Um, and so Ch- Ch- Joyce dealt with fame in a similar kind of way, um, but he didn't have movie, there weren't movie cameras and stuff, so when he went to England, people would photograph him on the street. I think the really interesting parallel so far I found between Dylan and uh, and Joyce and this goes to what I was saying a moment ago is Joyce famously said I'm not really an, a, a writer in the way you want me to be I'm a scissors and paste man and we can see in Joyce's notebooks that a lot of what he wrote he copied down from magazines or comments he heard on the street and we can trace in his notebooks how those phrases get changed a little bit and make their way into Ulysses he wasn't just writing this stuff out of his head he was listening to it writing it down and then recombining it in an interesting way. And Dylan is a scissors and paste man if I've ever seen one it's the method of the blues it's the method of folk music. And so there you see this kind of the highest of highbrows and James Joyce. And, 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 you know, and the rock star Dylan in some ways both using this same technique. And, and I think that's part of what makes them similar and what makes them such great artists is their ability to take so much in and combine it in such fascinating ways.
0: I think that would be news to Dylan fans that he, for lack of a better word, copied other people's materials for his own. That's that's somewhat of a disappointment, I would think.
1: Well, I wouldn't say it's, you know, I wouldn't, uh, copying is probably not quite the right word, but I think what you see in Dylan, I mean, I can give you an example. Uh, in the archive, I found what I thought was this really interesting draft of a song that Dylan had written. Uh, and, and it was a little rough still. There were missing verbs and like, it hadn't quite come together. And as I was looking through it and, and using the Google box on it, what I discovered was what Dylan had done is go through a Bible passage and take out words in order from about six different verses and construct a song from that. I don't know if you can really call that copying, right? He's taking these different words from the Bible and saying, oh, there's another story I can make like Mad Lib-like almost out of the Bible. And I think that's a better way to think about Dylan's method is what happens if I take a little bit of country music, mix it with a little bit of rock, right? Mix it with a few phrases or floating lines from the blues, right? And I can combine those into this new thing that I've made, right? I'm the one that like reassembled all this stuff. I think that's that's really interesting work. and I think that's what the great artists of the 20th century generally have done. They got away from that shadow of the romantic poet of just inventing stuff out of your head and said, we're a wash in culture. We're a wash in words. Everybody has their own kind of creativity. Every subculture, right? Every person around you might say something compelling. And the real artist is the one that can pick that stuff out of the air. Glue it together in a new way, and suddenly hear it, we all hear ourselves in it. I think that's what Dylan does.
0: I'm speaking with Sean Latham of the Dylan Archives at Tulsa University. Uh, and you've also written or, or edited a recent book on Bob Dylan called The World of Bob Dylan. And it, it is a whole world. For instance, I think the most criticism he's got in his career is when he be, became born again. And he's always written about religion and had streams of religious uh, symbolism in his music, but committing himself to Jesus uh, really isolated him. Was was he? I, he was serious at that time, right?
1: Oh, I think he was absolutely serious. I would never question a man's faith. Uh, I mean, that's between him and his and his God. The, I you know I I I would say the thing that has stood out to me, and we you know we got a gift a couple of years ago one thing Dylan is doing and it's amazing if you haven't heard them and you care at all about Dylan is releasing what he calls these bootleg series. So he's he's going back and basically releasing studio tapes, concert footage, all kinds of things throughout his career that are basically things that are in the archives. So you can go listen to these pieces of the archive yourself. And about two years ago, he released one of the bootleg series called uh, Trouble No More. That's about those Christian albums, those that, those three Christian albums. And they are amazing. You can hear just how astonishing these songs are. You can hear their origins, which is really the origins in gospel music. This is Dylan. One way to think about Dylan, I'll put it this way. Dylan, throughout the first part of his career, spent a lot of his time thinking about Black music, and especially about the blues. That was the template on which Dylan hung so much of his early songwriting and career. And of course, the blues are fascinating. They're a great American art form, but they're always about Black suffering. right? It only could conceive Blackness as being about deprivation pain imprisonment being left by your woman whatever there's a whole other tradition of black music that's about uplift community optimism right and looking toward a brighter future and that's gospel and so i think you know whatever dylan may be going on with dylan's faith in those period while he's releasing that out al- those albums he's also grappling with the other part of black experience and of black music and he's making really great songs I mean every grain of sand from that era is I think one of the greatest Dylan compositions that exists it's a beautiful beautiful song and people might be pissed because it didn't sound like rock and roll it didn't sound like the blues it wasn't about being angry it was about a different way of thinking about how to be together spiritually you know metaphysically nationally and i you know i think that's what really stands out to me about the, is, as being of interest in the christian period it's not the man's faith i can't judge him for that but what he does with the music his faith leads him to during that period
0: Sean Latham of Tulsa University's Institute for Bob Dylan Studies and home of the Bob Dylan Archives this weekend you are celebrating Bob Dylan's 80th birthday at Tulsa University with a weekend symposium. Is it unusual to be collecting the archives of a person that's living?
1: Yeah, that's pretty weird, actually. I've spent a lot of my time in archives, um, and it's it's a little odd when they're around. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you're, you're thinking and writing about people that are still alive. It's it, It's to some degree true whenever you're dealing with even archives of recently deceased people, James Joyce's archive, like his grandson is still around. And when you write stuff, his grandson gets pissed sometimes about what we might have to say. Um, In some ways, I think Dylan's given us an amazing gift to do this while he's still alive, while he can still decide what, what can kind of be done with it, to open up his life in this way. I mean, you often hear critics say, oh, Dylan, he's so private. He's so weird. He keeps himself so closed off. I can't imagine anything more personal than opening up As I said, 100,000 objects, like here's my whole back pages, you know, and you scholars start digging. I mean, I'm going to listen to you. Uh, You know, he's not going to respond. That's not a good. He's not going to respond.
0: I assume he knows who you are
1: i would assume i mean (laughs) but uh i never expect to meet the guy uh that would be antithetical i think to who he actually is because i i don't think he did this as an ego project he didn't put this out there so that like scholars would say oh it turns out yes dylan is in fact a great man we're so glad he put it out there and he's there are people who are writing about the warts and about the genius i mean there's it's a big risk it takes courage to put it out there but courage has been a watchword for dylan from the beginning from the time he plugged that guitar in and to a booing audience that takes courage. I mean, like the, even the band that was playing with him at the time was like, that's too weird. We can't do this anymore. Like, I'm not gonna go to a concert. These people have paid for tickets and they're gonna scream at me for an hour. I can't do that. That's just weird, you know, but Dylan had a vision and he pursued it. And that that's amazing. And I, I think this, this archive is sort of an acknowledgement that Dylan is part of American musical history and that like it or not, we may have some access to that. And it takes courage to sort of put yourself out there that way.
0: Does everyone have access to the archives at uh, Tulsa?
1: No, just, you know, scholars have to apply to get in. They want people that have a kind of research agenda using the materials. As you can imagine, you can't just kind of open these things up because people may want to do all kinds of things with them, including there there are hundreds, maybe thousands of unpublished songs in there. That's pretty valuable intellectual property um, that, you know, that as it emerges will become great albums, I'm sure, and great, covered by great people and will tell great stories about, oh, these lyrics that Dylan, how could he not have recorded this? God, I wish he had, right? There are probably several uh, Blind Willie McTells, right? Maybe the greatest Dylan composition ever made that he didn't release, right? He recorded for Infidels and then didn't release. So that kind of stuff is in the, in the archive. Uh, and so, yeah, of course, it takes a little bit of permissions and a little bit of they want scholars using this. They don't just want it open to the wide public. And, but there's and I, going to be a Bob Dylan yeah. center here that will be a museum-like experience where you come in and see artifacts from the archive, get a sense of Dylan's career. So.
0: And uh, I imagine the archive is still growing because Dylan is still producing. His latest yeah, album know, is, was great.
1: Right? I mean, that just came as a surprise. He totally... Uh, he took, I, I, I'll be blunt here. He totally screwed me. I'd written a great essay about Tempest as his last original composition. It was the title of Shakespeare's last play. It was about the Titanic, which was the subject of the Carter family's last song. I mean, it, it was perfect ending. Like I had it all worked out and then he released Rough and Rowdy Ways and all of a sudden my great story no <laughs> longer worked. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's an amazing thing about Dylan. He's still writing. He's still making stuff. He's still releasing stuff. Uh, and mag- archives, by their very nature are magnets. I mean it's probably worth noting that the Dylan archive sits two doors down from the Woody Guthrie archive here in Tulsa, right? And if Guthrie is Dylan's early career inspiration, you can put those two things together like pieces of a puzzle to get to get a broad look at the 20th century. The Phil Oaks archive sits in the Woody Guthrie archives. The Bob Dylan archive is now sort of gathering other kinds of materials and I think you can expect that to continue to grow. It's a it's a fascinating thing, and it's in a and it's in a city that I think can accommodate this. Tulsa's always been a kind of musical crossroads. The Dylan Center is just two blocks from from Kane's Ballroom, where Bob Wills broadcast on KBOO, created country swing. The Gap Band took its name from the intersection of Greenwood and Pine, which is just two two blocks in the other direction. Uh, church Studios, where Leon Russell sort of created, you know, his signature Tulsa sound, is just about a mile away. So there's a reason for Dylan's stuff to be here and and to think about that archive in relationship to this much bigger musical history that surrounds it.
0: That's very exciting. Sean Latham of the Dylan archives at Tulsa university. Uh, I have my favorite Dylan song. I want you to comment on it, but do you have a favorite (laughs) Dylan song?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, scholars aren't supposed to have favorites. I'm not supposed to be like the guy that says good or bad, but I'll say, I'll say I have two answers. Well, I have three answers in some ways. I'll say this. Uh, you know, the song that I first heard from Dylan and that uh, that sort of drew me to him when I was a kid was uh, was Rainy Day Women, that everybody must get stoned. Even when I heard that in the 80s, I couldn't believe they could play it on the radio, right? Uh, and uh, the most teachable Dylan song, I think, uh, is uh, is the whole album, Love and Theft, is just an amazingly teachable album. I love to take my students into that because every song is just a giant, musical history lesson, but for me, Dylan's, my favorite Dylan song, the one I can listen to over and over again, and I think is astonishing every time I hear it is Blind Willie McTell, that I mentioned earlier from that infidel session that he didn't even release after he recorded it. Uh, I just think it's an amazing meditation on on basically the racial history of popular music and what it means to be playing music that in some ways has grown out of black deprivation, out of vaudeville, out of blackface, menstrual shows. Dylan thinks through it in that song, and it's a really powerful thing to hear, to, to reckon with the past in that way.
0: I'm I'm going to play. I'll play Blind Willie McTell, but I'm going to play my favorite Dylan song. Yeah, it, it was written I guess when he was a young twenty year old. It's all right, Mom. Only bleeding. Uh, yeah. What What can you tell me about that song?
1: I mean, you know, it's one of those I wish we knew more about it because the the archive I should add er, earlier only really starts about 1966 when he gets to Woodstock and settles down, um, and has a place where papers can start to accumulate. Uh, you know i want to know a lot more about how it's all right ma Uh, i'm only bleeding got made because man that song just blows my mind uh it is such a cry of sort of pain and and fearlessness at the same time i always see it as a kind of response song to a hard rain's gonna fall right this kind of other useful song where he says i'm going to learn my song well before i start singing it's another song with a son narrating his story of going out into the world to a mother in that earlier version in, you know in in hard rain he's sort of saying i've seen all this and i'm gonna make art about it and it, it's all right ma it's it's like he's gone back out again and he's not sure he can make art about it anymore it's it's almost overwhelmed him so all he can do is record the pain and that pain it turns out becomes an astonishingly beautiful song
0: i just can't believe that this was a rock and roll song back in the early
1: <laughs> he
0: just took rock and roll to a whole new level back there
1: Absolutely. I mean, when you put it alongside the Beatles, right, and, you know, it's just the Beatles sounded great. I would never take anything away from the Beatles as fundamental to American music, but you could see why they heard songs like this, the Beatles, and were like, oh, we need to do something different. We need to take ourselves seriously because this music's on a whole other level. Dylan's
0: thinking about something else entirely. Sean Latham, head of the Institute for Bob Dylan Studies and overseer of the Bob Dylan Archives at Tulsa University. Sean, thank you so much for taking time to talking to us.
1: Yeah, it's been a pleasure.